The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Good morning, Radicals. Welcome back to the show. Today, going to talk with you again um, about the um, COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic and some bits of response to to that. And the thesis that I want to share with you this morning is simply, I don't want you to let my optimistic tone keep you from, from taking things seriously and from taking steps of preparation. In short, my summary statement is, it is definitely time to take the coronavirus extremely seriously. I think that it is time to engage in proactive social isolation. I think that it is time to um, to go to, what is it, DEFCON 5? Uh, certainly. Uh, if you, really anywhere in the world. Uh, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But I want to back up now that you know my thesis. That's, that's, that's my point that I want to drive home to you. And I'm going to back up and give you just a little bit of preamble. Last night I recorded the show and uh, that I did, kind of a brief overview. I was talking about the changes. And I once again tried to strike an optimistic tone. And then I, w- I released the show, went to bed. I was thinking about it during the night. As I woke up early this morning, I was just considering what I shared with you. And I realized that... I have been striking an overly optimistic tone, partly because I am genuinely optimistic, but partly also out of simple fear and self-preservation. Basically, I don't want to be seen as somebody who is irrationally shouting fire, irrationally shouting the sky is falling, etc., and that's a weighty responsibility. And basically, it comes down to my own personal pride, um, the pride and the desire to be right and not to be one who shouts unnecessarily about a crisis. When you are on record with your words in a public format, people will remember what you've said and they will remember uh, whether you got things right or wrong. I think back to things like the Y2K bug. There were many people who saw the major risks of a Y2K bug, and people who took Y2K seriously recommended people. They said, you know, stock up. You need to be prepared. The computers are going to fail. Everything's going to fall apart, et cetera. And they warned, warned, warned uh, for years. And then when the Y2K event arrived, it was basically a non-event. Nothing happened, basically. Now, that was a heavy load to bear for those people. And I, being being a late teenager, I then watched for years people get laughed at for taking Y2K seriously. For years, I watched people make fun of the people who bought a pallet of MREs and stored it in the garage. For years, I watched people who were in the public space be brought back. Oh, you you told everyone that Y2K was going to be a big deal, and look, you were wrong. Uh, and in fact, I have actually asked people why they were wrong. I remember one time um, 
Dr. Gary North was on the program, and he was a, a, a very loud warner of Y2K. And I asked him one time, I said, do you regret anything? They gave him the, the moniker Scary Gary for his intense Y2K warnings. And I asked him one time, I said, do you regret um, what you did with regard to Y2K? And his response in his typical curt uh, one-sentence way was something akin to, uh, I would rather be honestly wrong and I can't say it exactly. I would rather be honestly wrong and know that I did my best than to be quiet out of fear and feel like I shirked my duty. And so that statement, even though I've I've made it entirely uneloquent, the thrust of that statement has stuck with me for the years. And I've, I've tried to follow it. And, and just as I woke up this morning, I realized I... I'm giving into fear of not wanting to to seem like a person who is overly paranoid, overly uh, obsessed, overly strong. Uh, because with the psychology of the thing, if I'm if I'm wrong, let's say that I give dire warnings about COVID nineteen, and I'm wrong, having watched what happened in Y two K, I everyone remembers it. It gets rubbed all over the face. If I do a search for my name online, there's a, a forum somewhere that says, well, Joshua Sheets said this crazy thing, but blah, 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 he was so stupid. And then that forever is linked to me. I go to apply for a job interview in 20 years, and forever, all of that is there. Just like to this day, you can do a search for, I don't know, Gary North, Y2K, and you'll find all these articles talking about how wrong he was. Um, whereas if I'm cautious in my speech, if I'm if I, if I keep my tongue bridled and don't say anything, you know, I'm not, I'm not the nail that sticks up, then, and everybody is wrong, at least I don't get singled out. And I can kind of sit back and, and uh, blend in with the crowd. But I care more about um, being honest and being able to sleep with myself at night and, and, and look myself in the mirror and, and, respect the man who I see than I do about being wrong. And so I want to try to, uh, that's why I'm re-recording what I have just said today, to try to articulate to you um, the risk of a global flu pandemic. I am genuinely more optimistic about the risks of this particular global pandemic than I was a few months ago because this particular strain of the virus does not seem to have the highest mortality rate that has previously been feared. This does not have the mortality rate of the Black Plague, right? The plague. This does not have the mortality rate of Ebola. It does not have that kind of guaranteed death sentence mortality rate. That does not mean, however, that it's not extremely deadly. The best data right now seems to indicate that of the people who become infected with coronavirus, about 12% of those who are infected will have severe symptoms. 
and about 5% of the people who are infected will have critical symptoms and need critical care with some number of those people dying. Now, we can find reasons to be grateful. I shared with you last night. I am thankful that children do not seem to be deeply affected by this disease. As the father of four young children, that's an incredible um, relief to me. But that does not mean that my life cannot be entirely disrupted with elderly people becoming infected with the disease. I have parents. You have parents. I have grand- I have one grandmother still alive. She's 106. Now, in one way, if she, she lives in, an, in a nursing facility, she's 106. If she gets infected um, with the coronavirus and she dies, I'll take comfort in the fact that she lived a long life. It's hard to expect all that many more years when your grandmother is 106. But that doesn't make it any less important. The loss of a grandmother, the loss of other grandparents in a nursing facility is a very big deal. I have parents. My wife has parents, um, great-grandparents. And so we don't want these people to be infected. That's a tremendous loss of life. And of course, elderly people are not the only people who are at risk. So even with a death rate, and again, we don't know the, the, the death rate, it will, it will, the death rate will not be known until years after the initial waves of, uh, will, will not be known with, with, with a high degree of accuracy until years after some of the initial waves have passed through, and you can take an entire population where you can study and say, here are the antibodies in their blood, we know that they were infected, and we can see what percentage of those people died. But a few percent of death rate is a very significant thing, and it is, in addition to that, it's very significant because it can make death rates increase for other things. One of the major risks of a, of a, a viral outbreak, a viral pandemic, is it places such a load on the medical system that the hospitals are full, the doctor's offices are full, the doctor's offices are full of people who might be infected with coronavirus, and what happens is all of the rest of the normal medical conditions that people are generally um, suffering from, now they now receive poorer care. Perhaps you have a chainsaw accident and you, uh, you generally, you could get cared for pretty quickly, but now, the chainsaw is probably a bad example. Anything happens and you could have gotten previously cared for pretty quickly because you could go to the emergency room, you could be entered into the emergency room, you could go to ICU, you could have your, your, your needs met and there was sufficient capacity in the medical system to care for you. But now something has happened, you've had an accident, experienced some illness, heart attack, chainsaw accident, whatever the case is, but the medical system is so overloaded, you wind up waiting longer and longer at the emergency room. The intensive care unit is full of people with pneumonia and they can't care for you. So people die. Maybe I, w- I was talking with a, uh, a client of mine who was sharing with me some inside information from some friends of his who are in the medical community and the first responder community. And he was, they were uh, talking about how one of the biggest concerns is if the, um, if the virus starts to spread within the homeless community. Well, that can... Uh, completely overwhelm all of the normal first responders who have to respond because there's not no other real medical facilities that are available except that somebody passes out on the street and the cops call the EMTs and the EMTs come to come and help that person. So picture your city has 10 ambulances operating at any specific time, but it also has a large homeless population. 
But five of those ambulances are out taking care of homeless people who are passed out on the street due to coronavirus infections and serious illness because they often have other medical conditions, poor nutrition, um, alcoholism, tobacco use, drugs, etc. And so then you have a heart attack and somebody calls the ambulance and the ambulance is delayed in coming. So So there's the direct medical risk of the virus. And then there's the secondary medical risk of an overloaded, overtaxed medical system coming in from uh, from because everyone's taking care of the virus. There are other risks as well. Hospitals are famous places for you to get infections. They work really hard and they try really hard, but I'm convinced that hospitals are dangerous and the data indicates that out. They're less dangerous if you're having a severe heart attack. They're less dangerous if your leg just got chopped off or you had a car accident. They're less dangerous than staying on the side of the road. But they're actually really dangerous places because there's lots of sick and infectious people there. And so if your hospital is filled with sick and infectious people and you go in for something else, now there's a good chance that that becomes a center for you to to, uh, become ill. Or medical errors, right? Medical errors are a leading cause of death in the United States. Obviously, everybody involved in the medical system would like to bring that number down. But it's hard to be perfect all the time. But it's a lot harder to be perfect and to get everything right when you're personally stressed as a medical provider, you're overworked, you're working long hours, the hallways are full of sick people that you're trying to treat to, you're worried about having enough masks to put on. It's just a nightmare scenario that goes on and on and on and on and on. So back to my thesis, what I'm trying to impress upon you. I'm genuinely optimistic because children are not dying as much as previously was feared, and the death rate was not previously what it was feared. And for me personally, I have the luxury of being able to largely minimize and eliminate almost any social contact. That's a real blessing. That's a real luxury. I also, I'm going to use the word panicked because I think it implies what I want to imply without the actual denotation of the word being true. I didn't panic, but I panicked back in January. I didn't panic. I didn't freak, freak out. I responded. I mean, I responded back in January heavily. When I started to see it, I tried to maintain a lifestyle of preparedness, but I don't have a bunker filled with three years worth of food, largely because of traveling. Um, if I did If I was settled in one place and I had a farm, I would have a bunker with three years worth of food in it, but I don't. And I have not been convinced that I should give up the, the work that I'm doing in traveling in order to go and buy a farm with a bunker. Thought about it, haven't done it. So back in January, I saw the risk emerging and I said, this is serious. I went and stocked up on food, stocked up on medical supplies, et cetera. Then in February, I saw it getting worse and I thought, this is really serious and I went and I bought even more food, and I bought more medical supplies. I bought um, rehydration things, vitamins, uh, increased the vitamin dosages for uh, my family to try to, I don't know whether it works or not, but try to build immune systems, tried to make sure, I mean, we already eat you know, tons of, of, uh, of a diverse diet, but I made sure, again, we're getting lots of nutrients, lots of, of vitamins to, to, to make sure that we're really healthy. Uh, I tried to increase my hand washing. Um, just had I'm trying to teach my children because children are just 
awful at washing hands and, and you you go over it again and again and they don't do it but I've tried to teach the, the the medical hand washing techniques to my children so look you know children I'm, had my wife do it again while I've been away the last few days. Like, listen, here, give them this video. Here's this. So we're trying to get our two-year-old to, to, do, to learn how to wash hands and interlace the fingers and rotate them around and do the thumbs. And uh, so, I, you know, we'll see how well it's gone because they remember that stuff. And then, then they, uh, you say, go wash hands. And they all race in there. And, and two and a half seconds later, they're back at the table with soaking wet hands. And you're like, you didn't do it. <laughs> I'm sure every parent knows the, the struggle. But for me, I freaked out. I, I responded. I didn't, uh, panic and freak out are not good words. I responded vigorously back in January and February. So that by the time February got around, I felt pretty confident. I felt like, okay, I've done about all I can do for a flu pandemic. I have the supplies that I need to just simply stay at home. I have enough food that I can stay at home for months. I have a property that my family and I, we can happily just stay at home for months. I have enough money that I can just simply stay at home for months. If my business implodes, I have years worth of expenses saved. I can just simply figure it out. I can start another business. I can get another job. I can figure it out. But I'm optimistic that my business won't implode. I have big plans. I plan to make way more money this year than I did last year, no matter what. Like That's the goal. But um, I'm prepared. I could stay at home. I could isolate my family. I did everything I could think of to uh, protect against medical needs. So again, I, I tried to boost my family's immune systems. Um, I bought some, um, uh, made sure that we're stocked up on medications to bring down a fever, just basic care that I felt I could do at home. I bought a, uh, what's that stuff, the, the Pedialyte or Pediasure kind of thing. I bought some of those drinks and things that are could be used for rehydration. I figured that if, if I have a child who's really sick, in addition to other things, that this could be a helpful source of nutrients. I bought an oxygen concentrator. Um, I don't know whether that would work or not, but in my thinking about what can I do if there's an overloaded uh, medical system and I've got a sick child or I'm sick or my wife is sick, what can I do? And it just seemed like an oxygen concentrator would be the best thing I could do. I hope it was a waste of money. I hope I never need to use it, but I bought one. Um, I stocked up on masks. I stocked up on bleach. I got gallons of bleach. Uh, I don't have a lot of like plastic sheeting to create a quarantine room, but I do have a plan for it, how I would quarantine a family member if it got sick. I don't honestly think we could do that. It's one thing if I had a house full of adults that I could quarantine an adult in another room, but I don't honestly see how we could actually do a family quarantine of a child and, and stick a child in a room and say, you know, you're locked off here in this quarantine room. I don't think that's practical. Um, so I've done everything that I think I could do. I, as far as I can tell, I have, you know, I have lots of water stored, I have water filters, and I live in a place where there's tremendous access to food. Um, uh, all my, you know, my, I've got food on all sides, and so I'm not, I'm not that worried about it. And so for me, doing that back in January and February, I felt like I was overreacting because no one else was doing anything. I felt I was overreacting. But then I felt well prepared, and I thought, okay, I've done everything. So I talked with my wife. We went over our list. I said, I've done everything that we can think of. Let's just go forward. Now, since that time. With the lower death rate, I felt that it was a real relief. Like, okay, it's not the Black Plague, right? It's not the, it's not, it doesn't have 50% mortality rate. Uh, so I felt a real sense of relief. And I've also felt a relief as I've watched the data improve in China. And I've seen that 
some of the things that they've been able to do to beat thing, to to beat to beat it. Now, if the data is real, right? That's always the question. But I'm going to for now assume that it is. I think what they're doing is working. The extreme measures that they did were were are working. Um, that's what was going on in my psychology. That said, it's time to take it even more seriously. Here is what I currently believe is happening. All around the world, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who are infected, who are spreading the infection, and who simply don't realize it, who are just starting to realize it. But we're early in the reporting of the actual cases. There's the lag between when somebody is infected and infectious and when they actually experience symptoms. And then there's a lag as to when they actually experience symptoms versus when they actually seek medical care, receive some kind of test, and are counted. So it feels very hard to respond early. It's one thing for, it was one thing for me to respond and stock up back in January and February. Did that. But I did it rationally, and I thought, this is money that if I waste the money, okay, I don't like to waste money, but I'll feel good, right? The biggest possible waste of money was I bought an oxygen concentrator, spent $400, but okay, if I waste this, I'll keep it around. It might save somebody's life at some point, and if nothing else, I can give it to an elderly neighbor or whatnot, but at least I knew the price tag. But now we're at a point where you have to make lifestyle decisions, and I think that the data and the evidence indicates that this is the time to engage in significant social isolation. Now, I know that's harder for some people than others, but this is the time to do it. If we wait until the evidence is obvious that it's necessary, there's a very good chance that it's too late. That's why this is so hard. In all of the comments I've done on flu pandemics, I've, I've said, and I've, I've believed for years, a, a, a global viral outbreak is to me the worst possible disaster that's practiced, really, that I can see. Asteroid, okay, whatever. Um, I can't do much about an asteroid. But of the, of the things that has happened again and again throughout history, a global flu outbreak or a global viral infectious outbreak is one of the worst things that can happen. And for many reasons previously discussed, but one reason is it's so slow moving and you can't be sure of what's necessary. If there were a declaration of war from your neighboring country on your country, you would know that it's necessary for you to take action. The news reports could show the tanks massing at the border. If there were a nuclear explosion, you would know that that happened, and you would know that your concern is warranted. But right now, everything looks totally normal. As I record this episode, I'm looking out the window of my hotel. There are deer grazing in the woods. There are businessmen. There's a businessman getting in his car, going about his day. There's a highway filled with cars. Life looks normal outside. Everything looks normal, and yet we know there is a deadly little killer and millions of little cells that are deadly little killers spreading all around. And so you wonder, what's too much and what's not? Went down to breakfast this morning in the hotel. Guy there coughing. 
well, I stayed 15 feet away, but is that enough? Right? Did he cough on the, the, the silverware tray? I just washed my hands. Did I wash my hands again? It's maddening. It's maddening. Because if you're going to take the, the full measures, it just causes disruptions to your lifestyle. So I don't want you to think that my optimistic tone implies that you should not take things seriously. It feels weird right now to be the person who says, all right, that's it. I'm not going to go to this event. It feels weird. It feels like an overreaction. And I hope that it is an overreaction. I hope that it is. But you've got to take that action before you can prove that it's necessary in order for it to be effective. This outbreak, this pandemic, is proceeding exactly like I always pictured it proceeding when I've thought about it in years past. It's proceeding in the way that people who warn and talk about these subjects picture it, have talked about it. It's not a guaranteed death sentence. Again, I don't feel bad for picking on Ebola like this, but I just say it's not Ebola. Ebola itself was not a guaranteed death sentence, uh, but it's not Ebola. That doesn't make it unimportant. That doesn't make it insignificant. So what am I doing? Well, right now I'm traveling, and I'm hoping I can finish my business and get home. I don't want to be stuck in the United States away from my family. So right now, that's my number one concern. And I kind of feel like <laughs> I kind of feel like how a lot of travelers felt after 9/11 when all of everything was shut down. I've got backup plans. Okay, how do I get on a boat and, and uh, go across the ocean and get home if I can't fly? What happens if if a uh, country closes their borders? It, it's it's kind of an interesting scenario. You're very vulnerable when you're in transit. And I thought about canceling my trip, but I had the trip scheduled for a while, and I thought that, okay, I'll be able to get in and get out before things get too bad. I was watching it up to the last minute, but it just didn't seem like it was just didn't seem like it was quite time to cancel my trip. And I tell you what, I feel like I'm I'm playing with danger <laughs> that it I've got a, just a few days. As countries continue to impose more and more travel restrictions, I, I I will breathe easier once I get home. If I can't get home on an airplane, it will be an interesting um, an interesting journey to get home. We'll see what happens. Uh, so that's my biggest concern, is just simply getting home to my family. And once I get home, then um, I'm staying put. Uh, I have encouraged my wife to go ahead and move towards uh, uh, not total, like I'm not trying to be... Not all the way to total social isolation, but to to pull out of of unnecessary events. Um, still figuring out if that's warranted. Watch it day by day, uh, but uh, but I've gone to that, and uh, basically I'm going to the point of just trying to encourage family members and such to 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 distance yourself as much as possible. Uh, I think that I, I don't quite think we're to the point of you know not shopping at all, uh, but we get most of our vegetables from a farmer's market, so I'll continue to go to the farmer's market. That's a very low-risk place. It's outdoors. It's not a lot of people. 
Um, so, you know, most of our shopping is kind of in a, in a strange circumstance compared to how most people shop. Uh, we don't go to big, have a lot of big stores and things like that. So I, I think that those things are relatively low risk. And once again, I, I feel like just a little bit more time is needed. I think the next couple of weeks are going to make a big difference. Uh, although I expect this to go on for months, I think the next couple of weeks are going to make a big difference. I hate the fact that these kinds of actions that I'm engaging in and that I'm encouraging you to engage in, I hate that there is a major economic stress associated with it. Right? I don't like to think about what would happen to the income of my farmers where I buy food if I don't come and buy food from them. I want to support them. I want them to get the money. I want to have the good food. I don't want to eat rice and beans and flour. Um, but it seems prudent. And I don't like the fact that these actions are almost guaranteed to cause economic hardship for, for all of us with the constant ripple effect across the economy. But it does seem prudent at this point in time. This is simply not just the flu. It's not just the flu. People who say it's just the flu do not understand the multiplicative effects of a viral infection. They don't understand compounding. I posted online last night on Twitter um, that the next couple of weeks are going to be your living lesson in the power of compound interest. I think that's true. And if you remember about compounding, very early in the compounding chart, it seems like there's not a lot happening. Well, the same thing is happening with a viral infection. It seems like a lot of overreaction to the actual numbers, right? Doesn't it feel that way? You look around and universities are canceling classes, schools are canceling classes, companies are stopping people coming together. It seems like an overreaction. Unless you understand the compounding effects of a viral infection. And the only way to get ahead of a viral infection is to overreact early. I say it with emphasis because even though I'm entirely intellectually convinced of that, and even though I've been entirely intellectually convinced of that for years, it is still hard to say that in public. It's still hard for me to tell that to you because I'm scared of being wrong and I'm scared of being painted as a fear monger. Normalcy bias is a powerful thing. Normalcy bias is the, con- the, the inability to think that things could change drastically. Uh, it's basically the idea that you're, you blot out important information because you think everything is going to be fine. And you can see this in a natural disaster. There's a natural disaster heading for you, a forest fire heading for you, but you think, oh, it'll probably stop. It'll probably go away. The, the volcano is spitting ash. Oh, it'll probably won't blow up. The floods are coming. Well, it probably won't be so bad. We've lived in this house for a long time. It's been okay before. That's normalcy bias, wanting to see things continue. And we all have it. And one of the things that, the, the, the reason why I'm recording this again this morning, after just talking about this last night, saying, okay, that's it. I'm done with COVID-19. I'm going to talk about other stuff, is that I see in myself the, how strong that normalcy bias is. I'm so committed to not wanting to disrupt things that even though everything that I see around is proceeding apace, as I've thought it would be for a bad event, 
I'm so emotionally committed to not wanting to disrupt my family, not wanting to disrupt our normal life, not wanting to disrupt my business, not wanting to face those risks, that I don't want to take the public um, positions and I don't want to take the, um, the personal changes necessary for it. But I think that it is warranted. That's my advice. I hope that this was the hope that my tone is coming through. Uh, Panic is not the right word. Strong response and strong reaction is. I have the luxury of, uh, I have the luxury of having a simpler lifestyle than a lot of people. Back to the kind of the freedom of of lifestyle. Um, I work from home. My wife works from home. Our children work from home. And so for us, that question of social isolation is much easier than if I worked outside of the home, my wife worked outside of the home, and the children were outside of the home. I recognize how big of a decision it is to pull your children out of school. I recognize how disruptive that is to the family. I recognize how disruptive that is to to your ability to work. I recognize how disruptive that can be to your finances. There are no easy solutions to this. The easy solutions are gone. If you're going to be put into financial distress because you don't go to work for a few weeks, it's too late. The time to solve that financial distress from you're going, not going to work for a few weeks was a few years ago. Right? The time to save a year's worth of living expenses was over the past years. It's too late. Just like it's too late to protect your, if you are invested in mainstream stocks, it's too late to protect your portfolio from losses if you, if you just stayed invested the whole time, the time to make your plan for what you were going to do in a market downturn was when the market was good. So if you're going to suffer pain and financial shortfalls because you don't have a plan for who's going to care for your children if you pull them out of school, it's too late. I'm sorry. But it's too late. Now, even though it's too late, what I mean is it's not too late to act but it's too late to have a smooth ride. It's not too late to, um, to, for you to respond, but it's too late for it to be easy. When I've thought about, talked about, taught about disaster preparedness, one of the basic themes that I have emphasized is if you prepare in advance, the disaster that is so stressful for many other people can be much smoother and more comfortable for you. In most disasters, most people survive. Human beings are resilient. Human beings are creative. Human beings are wonderful problem solvers. And when, when the pressure is on, human beings generally figure out a way to solve their problems. That you're going to solve your problem. You're unlikely to die in the coronavirus. You're unlikely to, to have all the members of your family die. But if you didn't prepare, might still be a little bit of time, but if you didn't prepare, you're unlikely to be able to go through it comfortably. And, and that's what I'm talking about. So what I'm saying is if you are a dual income household and you don't have any money saved, 
it's too late for it to be comfortable for you. So now you're going to have to make some hard decisions. Now you're going to have to figure out what do we do from here? What precautions do we take? Who's going to care for the children? And you're going to have to figure out in your situation how to meet your needs and um, and do it in a reasonable way. Again, I hope that my intent is coming through, not to berate you, but to point out to you that the time to go shopping for toilet paper is not when the shelves are empty of toilet paper. It's too late. It's too late. By the way, on that, if you're worried about toilet paper, number one, um, toilet paper has been cheap for a very long time, and you were foolish for not stocking up. There is no reason why, unless you're physically living in an RV, there's no reason why you should not have stocked up on toilet paper in the past. If you are in a situation where the shelves are stripped clean of toilet paper and you're worried because you have four rolls at home, you have been behaving foolishly. And you need to take responsibility for the foolishness of your actions. Number two, you don't need to pay huge amounts of money for it. Just go and ask your neighbors if they have some toilet paper and see if anybody has anything to share with you or ask a family member. The toilet paper shortage is not, not going to be a forever thing. There, I don't really think that there's any reason why toilet paper has to be um, a major shortage. Number three, one of the best antidotes for, or one of the best uh, replacements for toilet paper is something like baby wipes. Only a heathen Philistine would use toilet paper in 2020 anyway. At the risk of this being an unusual topic for a financial show, I'm not a heathen Philistine and you shouldn't be either. Uh, Baby wipes or some sort of wet wipe is a far uh, better solution than dry toilet paper for your toilet paper needs. So I suggest that to you. So look around for things like baby wipes and see if those are available. Now, it's my understanding that those are probably in shorter supply, but you might be able to find those. So if you have children, maybe this is something, but one of the things that I've always done is we keep some toilet paper, but I always keep significant amounts of uh, significant amounts of baby wipes around. Just keep a couple extra boxes of baby wipes. And baby wipes last for a very long time because unlike toilet paper where you go through huge amounts of it uh, very quickly, you go through a very small number of those. So perhaps that could be helpful for you if you can find that or if you can use baby wipes. A small package of baby wipes will last you a lot longer than a bunch of rolls of toilet paper. Number, th- uh, I can't remember what number. Next, um, you can learn how to conserve and to use more modest amounts of materials. When times when there are shortages, one of the things that you can learn is just how well, how much you can do with a little bit. And this is a really useful exercise for you to go through. Uh, for example, um, in the United States, we waste huge amounts of water. All around the world, we waste huge amounts of water. And it's it's only when you go into a situation where you're really conserving something, conserving money, conserving water, et cetera, when you realize how much you actually don't need. 
with my family at the time, it was five. Our record is when we were RVing. We had a 51-gallon water tank in our RV, and we stretched that 51-gallon water tank for either five or six days. Now, some places in the world, they do far less, but you can learn how to be frugal. You can learn how to do more with less. That can be a good skill for you to learn. Next, it is entirely sanitary and workable for you, if push comes to shove, for you to use some sort of cloth as compared to paper, toilet paper. We've done cloth diapering for years. Used to gross me out. The idea of it before I had children grossed me out. I thought, cloth diapers? Why wouldn't you just throw all the, the crap away, right? But um, then I became, we, we, uh, we started cloth diapering, and I realized it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. And I often talk to my wife. I was like, you know, one of these days, we should just stop buying toilet paper. You know, Josh and Mr. Frugal, it doesn't cost much. But I'm like, it, when you're already washing um, reusable diapers, and what we've done for years is also my wife would make reusable wipes to use as well, uh, just a flannel cloth and uh, a flannel cloth that you wet with water before doing it, it just, before using it. It just gives you a better result. It's better than dealing with the paper products. Um, cloth diapers are objectively better than disposable diapers. The thing that we've changed on that, and I say that as a parent of four children, um, the thing that we've changed our minds on is when we travel, we use disposable diapers. And my wife hates them. And the reason is they always leak. They're, you're forever having a diaper blowout. Whereas with cloth diapers, I don't want to say never, but almost never do you have a diaper blowout. They're just, they work better. They're more functional. And yes, they require a different system, but they work better. The same thing with with fabric wipes. I get so annoyed using disposable wipes to clean my baby's bottom because it falls apart, whereas a cloth wipe doesn't. You have in your house a hot water supply. You have in your house uh, a dryer. And you should have in your house a clothesline. So if you need to, just simply take some old rags, some old shirts, cut them into squares. Uh, they probably don't need to be hemmed, but hem them if you can. Um, and use fabric cloths. And there are tons of people who do it. Use your washing machine, hot water, use your dryer if necessary, heat, hang them out in the sun, the UV light, and they're entirely fine and entirely sanitary. Um, use, you can have all the, just go and read the, what the cloth diapers learn with the types of soaps to use, et cetera, and you're good to go. So you need to develop, the. it's kind of a weird topic to be talking about, but this is the type of skill that you need to develop in the coming days. The skill of creative thinking and creative problem solving is a skill that you need to develop if you already, if you don't have it. Now, I'm not trying to convince you. Uh, We don't use reusable toilet cloths in our house. I've thought about it. Um, I don't think it would be gross, um, but we just haven't chosen to do it. Just like we haven't, you know, we don't do um, human, you know, humanure composting. Uh, We don't do, I don't do that. Um, But not because I don't think I could do it. Uh, And I know about how to do it. I know how to do it safely in case I ever did need to do it. I'm teaching the live preparedness class, and it was delayed for a couple of days. But uh, in the next class, we're going to be talking about sanitation. Uh, And one of the most important things that you need to think about is sanitation. Because in a real, what I'll call a grid-down emergency, if you understand the term, meaning that there's a breakdown of, of services. And just to be clear, I don't think that the flu pandemic is going to cause that. I don't think it will. 
Um, I don't think that it. Uh, I don't think that the flu pandemic is going to cause the electricity to go off, the water to go off, etc. Could it? Yes, it could. But I don't think that this particular version of the flu is going to do that. Now, if this version mutates, uh, becomes more deadly, it could result in that. Or there could be some other compounding effect. Uh, if there is another disaster that's compounded by a flu, then, of course, it could. But I don't currently think that's going to happen. But in a grid-down emergency, your number one thing is, is got to, or one of your highest priorities has to be sanitation. How are you going to dispose of the unsanitary waste of your household? If you're used to just simply taking all your trash and putting it in a trash bag and putting the trash bag out by the curb, what do you do with that trash when they're no longer collecting trash by the curb? There is a major risk right now to sanitation workers of the virus, not garbage workers, but people working in the sewer system, for example. It's my understanding that the data indicates that this particular flu virus um, is found in fecal matter, um, possibly also urine, but fecal matter. This is one of the reasons why, in the current scenario, public restrooms are uh, dangerous places for you to be. In a public restroom, anytime a toilet flushes, there is some amount of fecal spray, some of the, the substance of uh, feces that gets sprayed around in a restroom. Now, usually that's fairly small. It's higher in commercial restrooms where there's a fast flush versus the flush that you're uh, familiar with at home. But the virus is found in feces. And so this legitimately poses a threat right now to people who work in water, water, what's it called? water treatment facilities and things like that. Because if a large number of people are infected with the virus, their feces are carrying that virus. And this airborne, the airborne risk is significant to people who are working in wastewater treatment plants like that right now. So... Um, Public restrooms, as far as practice, public restrooms are dangerous places for you to be. You need to minimize your time in public restrooms at the moment um, because of of this, um, uh, again, the, the virus is in feces and you have fecal spray where there are uh, toilets being flushed. So when you think about the problem, you need to have a plan in your family for how you would handle your family sanitation. What would you do if your garbage were no longer being picked up? How would you dispose of the garbage? What would you do if your toilets no longer flush? How will you dispose of your human waste? What's your plan? How will you keep your drinking water clean if you and all of your neighbors are trying to figure out how to dispose of your human waste without the standard sewer systems that we're engaged in? I don't think this virus is going to lead to that level of breakdown unless it mutates or unless there's other some, some other compounding event. Uh, I, I've said it four times. I don't think or that there. But you need to think through circumstances like that. So if you are finding yourself unprepared and you're freaking out because there's no toilet paper, you have been short-sighted. You have behaved foolishly by not stockpiling toilet paper and you are not engaging your creative thinking or studying how to solve your problems yet. There are plenty of flannel towels and flannel sheets available at your local Goodwill. So if you're out of toilet paper, go to your local Goodwill, buy a flannel sheet, cut it up into squares, put a stack of them in your bathroom, 
next to the sink where you can get them wet, use them for the appropriate business and put aside a canister to collect them and then take them to your washing machine. Problem solved. Now that's one of the easiest things that you can possibly do. How much harder is it going to be if you face bigger problems than that? This is time to get engaged, get in gear, get serious, and start working on the logistics of your situation. I hope that you have taken precautions. I hope that you have saved money. I hope that you have stockpiled supplies. I hope that you've done those things for the years. If I have not, I've tried to sound the, the, the alarm as strongly as I could over the years. Um, I hope that you've listened. If I didn't sound it strongly enough, I'm sorry. The reason is just simply it feels weird to always be the guy who's talking about the weird stuff, and I don't like to have that public reputation. But learn from what you see, the panic. It's just going to grow, and it's going to grow, and it's going to grow until more data is known. And then what I think is going to happen is the panic's going to grow. People are going to respond. And then what will happen is it'll start to die down because people will get tired of it. That doesn't mean the risk gets lower. People get tired of it and they figure, I just got to move on with life. That's what I think is happening in China right now. People are just moving on with life. And um, they've figured out some ways to potentially contain it. But in other nations, we still got to go through the hard point. Um, Look at China. Look at Italy. United States. Canada. That's what's coming for you within the next few weeks. Take it seriously. Don't give in to your normalcy bias. I'm fighting mine with all I can. Take the precautions early. The worst case is you miss out on a few weeks of social engagements. I know the cost is higher with work and whatnot. Sorry. That's why you save money. That's why you keep your expenses low, etc. I don't want to cause panic. I want to keep an optimistic tone. But I do want, I don't want to, an optimistic tone because I genuinely feel optimistic and I'm committed to looking for opportunities in the midst of disaster. My study of history tells me that there are always opportunities in the midst of disaster. And if this disaster continues for months and months and months, there will be some people who make their fortunes in this time. And I believe that's a psychologically healthy place to be. But don't let that sense of optimism cause you not to take practical steps to isolate yourself, isolate your family, isolate your employees if practical. When the cost is higher, and if you run a business where your employees are physical, it's more difficult. Um, You might have to take more risks. There just simply is no way around it to try to maintain for the benefit of your employees. Um, But take the steps that you can take today and move early, even though it doesn't feel like it, that gets necessary because that's what will ultimately protect you. Be back with you soon. I'm here to serve. If you got questions, maybe um, I, with my travel and commitments today and whatnot, I'm, my schedule is a wreck. Um, but as soon as I can, I will uh, maybe I'll try to host a live Q and A show and we could talk about some of your questions and feedback. Uh, I'll let you know with those details as soon as I can. Thanks for being here.